If I haven't met you, my name is Grant, one of the teaching pastors here. And one of the cool things that's come out of this series called God Is, um, is a friendship that I've actually developed with a guy. Um, Three of you from our church invited him to church, and he came to get you off of his back. He showed up, and what's interesting about my friend is he is an atheist slash agnostic slash skeptic. So when the God guy and the non-guy God guy get together for coffee, we have very animated conversations. And we've been meeting together for a little while. We saw each other this past week, and when he walked in the door, I could tell that he was very agitated. And just to put your minds at ease, I did ask him for permission to share about our conversation. And he told me, because he calls church fairy tale time. So he goes, you can share anything you want to in fairy tale time. I'm totally cool with that. So he walked in and I could tell he was agitated and we began to talk and basically it just came out of him. And he said, Grant, how in the world do you defend the corruption that is so pervasive in Christianity? He goes, I just don't even understand it. He goes, you open your book that you read from and it starts with the story of a God completely wiping out humankind because they're evil and sinful. He goes, how do you defend the corruption in the, in the Roman Catholic Church sex scandal that's been going on? Now, obviously, he'd been doing a little bit of reading. He goes, how do you defend the fact that three fairly high-profile pastors who called themselves followers of Jesus took their own lives in the last six weeks in this country? How do you defend that? How, do, how does that come in? He, he goes, well, how do you explain the high-profile moral failure of television preachers? He goes, how, how do you defend the religious overtones uh, that on the other side of the world are justifying sending rockets into neighborhoods in the Middle East, on the other side of the country? He goes, how, how do you explain away the religious genocide that has happened over all of the centuries? I mean, he goes, how do you, how do you defend what's been done in the name of God with with the Crusades and the Inquisitions and, and the, Wayland, or the Salem witch hunt. I mean, he goes, how do you defend the fact that so-called godly men in the founding of this country also owned other human beings as slaves? He goes, how in the world do you justify that? How do you come to any other conclusion that Christianity and the God at the helm of Christianity, how do you come to any other conclusion that that God must be corrupt? Isn't that a great way to start a coffee conversation, right? I'm just like, yes, awesome. But I started thinking to myself, why do people believe that God is corrupt? And you may say, well, that's just for isolated people. I don't think so. This is not foreign or obscure thinking. Ken Shea is, a, is a, a fairly famous atheist writer. He said this, he goes, Christianity has, by certain people, been used throughout history as an excuse for some of the most brutal, heartless, and senseless atrocities known to man. The historical examples are not difficult to recall. The Crusades, the Inquisitions, the witch burnings, the Holocaust. Ken concludes with these words. I, I did not see much in Christianity that I considered to be worth having. Those are pretty strong words, aren't they? Maybe you've run into that kind of thinking or that kind of perspective before. Maybe you've engaged in this kind of a conversation. You're just like, I don't even know where to start or where to go. Because let's face it, this is an intimidating conversation. Let's listen to a quote from a Nobel Prize winner who says this, with or without religion, you would have good people doing good things and evil people doing evil things. But for good people to do evil things, that takes religion. Wow. Those are tough words. So practically, what do you do in those moments when the God that you love and the faith that you profess to follow, what do you do when they're being put on trial? I know for most of us, we're just like, we abdicate, just like, I'm not going there. 
Let's just drink our mocha and go home, right? We're just not going to go into that particular direction. What do you do when you're having those conversations? What do you do when people around you who are your so-called brothers and sisters, and yet they see with their life, they seem to be making a case that's pressing against the very faith that you're trying to share with the people that is in your world? What do you do? Well, as I'm sitting there across from my friend, I feel and hear in my spirit, deep inside of my soul, one of my favorite proverbs. One of my favorite proverbs says this, a soft answer turns away anger. A gentle word turns away wrath. And that's not natural for me. I used to be a bit of a debater. I don't mind on a theological thing like that. I kind of like it when the really nice young men with the white shirts and the bicycle helmets show up on my front doorstep. I kind of enjoy that kind of a conversation. But in this case, it's just like the, a soft answer turns away anger. So a proverb popped into my brain, a principle popped into my brain, a principle that I learned here. The place of agreement's the place of power. So I thought, what could we get in agreement over? And I felt the Holy Spirit of God tap me in the back of the brain and whisper three words. Okay, you can call me nuts if you want to. That was my experience. But I heard three words. Can we agree? Can we agree? Can I, can I also just say something? I know some of you, you're just kind of freaked out by the fact that these conversations even happen. Can I tell you something from experience? When you are willing to cross that line and actually go there, you not only meet another human being that could challenge you and maybe even sharpen you a little bit, but I promise you something. If you're willing to step across that line and be bold enough to speak on behalf of God, I promise you the Holy Spirit will meet you there. I promise you he will fill your mouth with answers that you didn't even know you knew. I promise you that he will move in the right direction. I promise you he will honor you if you're honest. If somebody asks you a tough question and your honest response is, I do not know. Yeah, that would be honest, right? If you just said, I don't know the answer to your question, but I'll go and try and find out. So many of us, we're just so afraid we're going to do something wrong. We never, ever enter into the kind of conversation that can actually introduce Jesus to somebody. So, can we agree that these conversations are difficult? Can we agree that this, is, that this is just difficult territory to navigate? I mean, I'm not talking about agreeing with the premise that Christianity is corrupt, because I don't believe that. I believe Christianity is composed by a group of fallible human beings that trip over themselves at the most regular intervals, including myself. It happens all of the time. No, I'm talking about finding a common place where we can agree that wrong is just wrong. Let me give you an example, okay? Can we agree that the church as a whole has done a poor job engaging the world in meaningful dialogue? I mean, the truth is the body of Christ is known for one predominant body part, right? The mouth right? And we just talk, right? We have big opinions and we just like to blow stuff up. We like to say whatever we want to say. We like to spew opinion, some of which are not even shared by Jesus. So can we agree that we're most known for our mouthing of opinion? Can we agree that God gave us one mouth and two ears on purpose? Can we do that math together, church? Like, can we do that, right? Can we agree that arguing rarely produces life change in the person we're arguing with? Can we agree that if you're smart enough to talk, to talk somebody into something, that somebody smarter can come along and probably talk them out of it? Can we agree that unless God gets right in the middle of a conversation, that it's probably going to go nowhere? 
Can we agree with that? Can you nod your head if there's any agreement there at all? I mean, when my friend finished stating his case, I began to try and find some place of agreement. So I asked him a question. I said, so can we agree that there's no defending sinful action that's done in the name of God? I said, I don't have a defense for you about the injustice that's been done in the name of God. I actually believe that those atrocities that he mentioned break the heart of God himself. I believe that God grieves when people take his message and they twist it to fit an ideology that's caused pain or abuse and even death. And I believe that while I can't own the sin of another human being, I can at least acknowledge the damage that it's caused to someone who's been hurt. So obviously, my friend's been hurt by the fact so-called professing Christians are acting in a way that's inconsistent with the message that they're trying to live out. And it's caused some tension for him. So what I, would, I would ask you a question. Let's step out of the coffee shop for a second. Let's come to church. Can we agree that defending sin shows a profound lack of ownership and responsibility? I mean, when we defend sin... We pour salt on the wound of those who are affected by the sin. And scripture actually says we're supposed to be ambassadors of reconciliation, which means we're in the job of healing those relationships. If our goal is healing, then one of our first steps must be to own what we have to own. And the truth is this. If we look back over history, we can own the fact that people have dragged the name of our God through the mud with their ungodly actions. And we can probably own the fact that at some level we've all contributed, right? Which pushes us to another question. Can we agree that human beings are often the poorest example of God's heart? (laughs) Right? Can we agree on that? I mean, God's heart for love and justice, I believe, often finds its poorest reflection in the mirrored image of God's creation. Because the and the Bible even tells us that's the way it's gonna be. You know how the Bible describes my heart? The Bible says my heart is deceitfully wicked. Isn't that encouraging on a sunny day in Whatcom County, right? Yeah, I'm deceitfully wicked. What did you learn in church? I'm I'm a wicked man. That's what I learned, right? But that's what Scripture says. Inside of us, at the core of who we are, there's deceit and wickedness. It comes out at, at the most inopportune times. The beautiful thing about Scripture is that it also says that God has an answer for that deceitfully wicked heart. And it's only through the miraculous work of grace that happens when a person encounters Jesus and there's this glorious redirection of the human heart towards this beautiful thing called grace. It's true. Humans are poor representations of Jesus. But when God truly moves in and inhabits a life, when the Holy Spirit transforms a human soul from an enemy of God, which the Bible calls us, into a child of God, which the Bible also calls us, when the Father adopts a human soul and brings them into his family, then this beautiful and genuine reflection of God's heart begins to shine and the world actually sits up and takes notice. You know what? My friend from the coffee shop, he thinks I'm nuts. He thinks I'm crazy. But the thing that drives him nuts is this. He goes, I don't understand how your fairy tale brings you so much peace and joy. (laughs) That's just fun, right? So I turned my attention back to my coffee shop conversation. And I asked another question. I said, so can we agree that not everything done in the name of God has anything to do with God at all? And he actually nodded, right? Just because the name of God's attached to something doesn't mean it's carrying with it the sanction or the blessing 
of God. I mean, many things have the name of Jesus attached to it, but you peel it back and what you see inside, eh, it's not Jesus, right? I mean, I shudder to think of what's going to happen to people who've used the name of God to justify evil. In fact, God says there's a special judgment for those kind of people when you misrepresent God. And the truth is we all have at some point, right? But it's scary. So I pressed in and asked another question. I said, can we agree that Jesus might actually have something to say about those who carry out evil in his name. Now, my friend, he doesn't like it when I bring my Bible, okay? So I put it on my phone, all right? So a little less intimidating, right? I said, you know, this may shock you, but I said, but when it comes to people using God's name to perpetrate evil, I said, I actually think that God would agree with your opinion that that's just wrong. I said, in fact... He said, can I read to you the words of Jesus from Matthew 7? Because he was talking to a group of religious people who were actually doing exactly that. They were carrying out some evil with regards to, to, to how they were portraying that religion was the thing that saved, not a relationship with God. So he said, okay, do whatever you want to. So I read Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus speaking. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. It's pretty blunt, isn't it? But only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you, what does it say? Evildoers. Ouch. Jesus confronts religious people of the day who claim to know God but lived out their life directly opposed to everything that God stood for. And he sums up their relationship with these words. I don't know you. You claim to know me, but I don't know you. You're not doing anything that's in alignment with my heart. Therefore, we don't know each other. It just brings about a principle that we teach here over and over and over again. There's a quantum difference between knowing about God and actually knowing God. They are not the same thing. So we're having a conversation, right? We're just talking back and forth. And I figure to myself, if you can ask a question about evil that was perpetrated in God's name, I should be able to ask a question about evil that was perpetrated without God's name attached. So I asked a question. What do you do with all of the evil that was perpetrated by those who have no regard for God at all? I mean, let's just look back at it, right? The communist regimes, all of them in world history that strategically removed God and yet caused millions upon millions upon millions of people to suffer and die. No mention of God at all, but the same evil's going on. 2004, 2005, I'm in Ukraine. And the Ukrainian people still talk about, they call it the Ukrainian scourge or the Ukrainian nightmare. It was a time in their history when their government literally blockaded the entire area, the breadbasket of Russia, which is where most of the food was produced. They blockaded it during the wintertime so that no food could get into the people there. And millions upon millions upon millions of Ukrainians died at the hands of their own government, their own people. I said, what do you do with guys like Lenin and Stalin or the Khmer Rouge? Or what do you do with political ideologies that were used to justify mass killing or ethnic cleansing? I said, can we agree that atrocities are not just simply attributed to, 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 to movements with religious overtones? I said, can we agree that regardless of the motivator of it, that that kind of evil just might break God's heart? He said, yeah. I said, oh, so you're acknowledging there's a God? He goes, you know what I mean, right? You know what I mean. 
So we will move on. Because we're just talking, right? It's just two guys. Some of you were in the coffee shop while this was going on. All right? I saw you. And we just move on. I asked another question. Can we agree that there's actually been some good fruit that have come from people acting in the name of God? I mean, let's talk about the upside, right? Said the modern hospital movement today of people being looked after, uh, looking after and caring for the infirmed and the sick, that that actually began with authentic followers of Jesus. I said, how about schools, education all across the world, many and many of which have were begun with the thought of people reaching out authentically in the name of Jesus so that people have an opportunity to learn. I said, what, what about some of the greatest higher learning institutions in this country? These days, most of the schools that are known as Ivy League actually began as seminaries, places where people would go to learn about God because they felt God had a lot to do with modern thought and philosophy. I said, well, what about feeding programs all over the world where authentic followers of Christ actually showed up in order to feed people that were being, being ravaged by famine and having difficulty? I said, I understand lots of other people got involved, but I said, if you just removed the feeding that happens in this county, by churches and people who love Jesus Christ, the impact would be unbelievable. I said, you know, what about those times when authentic followers of Jesus just stood in the gap where evil was running rampant? I said, can we acknowledge that a lot of good has been done by those who truly and authentically have followed Jesus Christ? So we're having this conversation, we're going back and forth. And you know what it's like when you feel like you finally, you're having a conversation with somebody, you finally got through all the peripheral stuff and then you right, got down to the, to the issue? So I said, so, so what's the deal? Like, what's the deal? I mean, you're the non-God guy, I'm the God guy, and we're just sitting here having this conversation. What's the real deal? He says, okay, here's the deal. He goes, how do you defend the continuum, right? He goes, here's been my experience. He goes, on one end of the continuum are the religious fanatics. And he goes, they just drive me nuts. Because he goes, you know, they're just beating people over the head with the Bible. And just the fanatics. And he goes, and they're loud, and they're brash, and they're rude, and they're ignorant, and they're arrogant. And he goes, it drives me crazy. And on the other end of the continuum, he goes, are the religious hypocrites. He says, that just drives me crazy. He goes, how do you feel about the fanatics at one end of the scale and the hypocrites at the other end of the scale? <laughs> like, wee! Like, that's just so much fun to tackle, Right? In those moments, I'm thankful for the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and Pastor Tim Keller, because he's really, really smart, okay? Tim Keller wrote a book called The Reason for God. If you want some summer reading, I think every Christian should have to read the book, The Reason for God, by Pastor Tim Keller. He's from New York City. He's an amazing man. He's brilliant. He's a great thinker, and anybody can, can go through it. It's amazing. In one chapter, he has a profound insight. And he basically says this, he goes, let's face it, religious fanatics and religious hypocrites, they can be very off-putting for people who are dealing or trying to find out where God is. Some of you have dealt with a religious fanatic on Western's campus, right? Big sign that lists off all of the people that God supposedly hates. And if you try to have a conversation with him, he'll blow a whistle until you run out of words, right? Religious fanatic. Some of you have also dealt with the religious hypocrite. And let's not pretend that we haven't all slid on the scale at some point, right? There's the religious uh, hypocrite over here. And they're a person who, who claims to know God. This is actually a scripture verse. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. One is known for religious violence because it's done with God's name attached. The other is known for religious apathy, and it only names Jesus when it's convenient or there's a crisis. Anybody ever been on that end of the scale at some point, right? 
Keller asks a question. I love this question. He says, can we agree that the answer to both nominalism, that's hypocrisy, and fanaticism, that's the crazy people, can we agree that the answer to both nominalism and fanaticism is more of Jesus? That the answer is actually not less gospel, it's more gospel. You see, the fanatics, they love the whip-wielding, table-flipping Jesus of the Bible. They don't like the Jesus that comes and says, love your enemy. It's a little too soft for them. Keller puts it this way. He says, they're fanatically zealous and courageous, but they're not fanatically humble. They're not fanatically sensitive. They're not fanatically forgiving. They're not fanatically understanding. The religious hypocrites on the other side, they love the God is love Jesus. Oh, that's so good. But they're offended by the Jesus that has the gall to show up and say, I need your life, all of it. Demands of my life, my soul, my all. Period. That's where it starts. And the answer is, they both need more of the gospel. I would ask the question to you, as my brothers and sisters, can we agree that the answer to both extremes is not simply moving to the middle, but instead to live out the call and the character of Jesus? I mean, our answer to so many continuums in the world is just move to the middle, right? That's the answer. Just find the middle. Find the place of balance and equilibrium. Don't rock the boat. Just be quiet. Don't move. You'll be okay. Don't pray over your lunch in the lunchroom. They'll think you're a freak. Don't ever have one of those conversations that might actually talk about God that might be offensive to somebody. No, just Just keep your mouth shut. Don't move. Stay on the fence. Play it safe. We're all good. And this is what we call the joyous Christian life. (laughs) Can I show you an example of how we do this in our culture? The Bible says there's two roads. A broad road that leads to hell, and many people find it, and a narrow road that leads to eternity, and very few people find it. We hear that. There's a broad road, there's a narrow road. What's our answer? I'm going to create my own middle road. I'm going to make my own middle road because I don't want to be this freak over here on this narrow road. That's a difficult one. And I want to be able to keep doing Jesus on the side on the broad road over here. I mean, so I want to be able to do this. That's my answer to the whole thing. I'm going to find a middle road and it's not bumpy and it's easy and nobody bugs me and I don't offend anybody and it's absolutely awesome. So can I be very subtle? If you're balancing on that, that fence between Jesus and not Jesus, can I tell you the fence belongs to the devil and the middle of the road is the ditch on the side of the road that's going to hell. Is that subtle enough for everybody? Can we handle that in the middle of summer when we're just like, I just want to go to the beach. I did not come to church for this, right? <laughs> just give me SPF and leave me alone, right? The answer's not in the middle. The answer's in the heart of God. So we both have to get back to work. And my friend is tapping his mocha cup. He said, can I read you one more thing? He's like, oh, man, really? Like, I can't defend everything that's ever happened in the history of Christianity. I can't. I think some of it breaks God's heart. I'm just saying that. But this would be crazy if you didn't at least have an opportunity to hear what God's heart actually is. So can I read this to you? He's like, you're going to anyway. I'm like, yeah. Isaiah 58 Let me explain it to you before we start talking. 
God is confronting a group of people here who are fasting. They're withdrawing from food in order to make themselves weak so they can hear God. Here's the problem with it. They're doing all the right things for all the wrong reasons. And this is what God says to them, the word of the Lord. Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. Day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. Does that sound at all like some of us sometimes? They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. That just comes a little too close to home, doesn't it? They ask me for decisions. They seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they said, and haven't seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves? You haven't noticed. Yet on the day of fasting, you do what you want to, you do as you please, and you exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. God's saying, you're doing this religious exercise. The problem is this. You break the fast and go to eat and you end up with a fist fight with the guy behind you on the way to the buffet. Like, how ridiculous is that? There's a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed or lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? And then he gets right down to it. Is this not the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke. To set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Is it not to share your food with the hungry? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? I mean, God is saying, that's my heart. It's my heart if you see a need to meet it. It's my heart if you see someone chained that you're to break out a hacksaw and get them free. Not retreat. Not walk away from a poor wanderer who's out there trying his best to figure out where in the world does God fit in this at all, but instead to stand up and say, no, come this direction. Come in the direction of the cross. This is where I found healing. This is where I found hope. Come, and f- come this way. The Bible tells us what will happen if we're willing to engage in those conversations and, do th- and live out the heart of God. Verse 8, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. And then you will call and the Lord will answer. You'll cry for help and he will say, here am I. Isn't that beautiful? Look at the payoff. So I read it to my friend, and I, I said, I, I, I'll say it again, I have no excuse for the atrocities that have been done in the name of God, but I'll tell you what, that's the heart of the God I love and serve, right there. That's Him. You know, I want more than anything, I want my friend to know Him. I do. You know, I can't speak for anybody else. 
But I'm called as a follower of Christ to neither embrace religious fanaticism or religious hypocrisy, but instead to embrace the call of my favorite feisty fig farming prophet. I love the prophet Amos. He's amazing. And he wrote this in Amos 5.24. These are our marching orders. Let justice roll down like water and righteousness as a mighty stream. Why would he choose the word justice and righteousness? Because I believe God is just. Justly benevolent. I believe he is not corrupt. I believe he is justly benevolent. And when we step into that, God begins to move and lives begin to change. God is justly benevolent. If you're a redneck, you'd say God is right good. <laughs> He's right good, right there. Why do we have a food bank? Jesus. Why do we stand up in our church for God's love and protection for unborn? Jesus. Why do we choose to love our enemies? Jesus. Why do we own our own history? Even the stuff that's painful to look at. Jesus. I told my friend, I said, here's what's ironic to me. You're holding history against God. And God promises he won't hold your history against you. Whew. Why did we start campuses in our own city and shrink our church here in Bellingham on purpose? Jesus. Why are we here on an 80 plus degree day inside Jesus? And Jesus has a proposition for each one of us. These are not my words. These are the words of God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He says, come now, let us reason together. Let's have a conversation. Let's talk. Let's talk about the fact that though your sin be as scarlet, it can be washed as white as snow. Let's talk about the fact that for some of us, hearing the word religious hypocrite was very convicting. For some of us, hearing the word religious fanatic was very convicting. For hearing the word an actual conversation with a person who doesn't believe the same thing you do. That was very convicting because I've had those conversations all weekend long. People just saying, I'm just afraid. Remember what I said at the beginning? If you go there, God will be there. He will be there. So I don't know where you find yourself today. Religious hypocrite, religious fanatic. Maybe you're an authentic follower of Jesus and this has just been a great encouragement because you're thinking, I got three new words I can play with this week. Can we agree? Maybe you're having to step back. Maybe you're here today and you're the atheist slash agnostic slash skeptic. Can I say something to you as the pastor of this church? We love that you're here. Come and hang out and ask tough questions. Nobody's going to do anything weird. 
We love the fact that you're seeking. Guess what? We were all seeking too. And we still are. And if you don't think you've got this figured out, welcome to our family. Oh my goodness. So wherever you find yourself on the continuum or in the conversation, my prayer is that each one of us would understand that the answer to all of that is more of Jesus. We don't need less of the gospel. We need more. So may you carry that with you. and May you engage this week. Don't be afraid of the conversation. I said this in the last service. It might get me in trouble. It's okay. I double dog dare you to go there. <laughs> and see whether or not God doesn't show up. Because I promise you something. That person you're talking to. God loves them more than you ever could. And he went to a cross to prove it. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning and an opportunity to be here. Lord, I pray for anyone that might be here that is skeptical, frustrated. Lord, I pray that they would bring their most difficult questions to you. And I thank you that we may be a part, a small part, in trying to answer some of those. Lord, we know the atrocities of history perpetrated in your name break our heart. I can't even imagine what it must do to yours. But Father, I pray that we would not contribute to the long list of religious hypocrisy or religious fanaticism. Lord, I pray that instead we would be those authentic followers of Jesus who will stand for justice and yet be very, very practical in our application of the words, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. So, Father, as we enter deeper into the conversation for the rest of the summer, may you continue to do a good work in us. Father God, may we be forever changed because of the work you're doing deep in our soul. And we will give you all of the praise and all of the glory. And we pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.